Hello, MSG fans. This is Sarah Lohman. I know it's been a year since you've heard from me, but I think we all know what happened in 2020. So uh, the last I told you is that we were going to be launching a new podcast with Caveat, the venue that we perform at on New York's Lower East Side. We were due to begin recording that podcast in March. And then, of course, that was the beginning of Shelter in Place for the pandemic. So in the meantime, we've gone online and I have some recordings of some of the lectures we've been doing. So I'm happy to bring you our talk about takeout and delivery. Look, the audio is not awesome. <laughs> this is the first one we recorded off of Zoom. Mine is especially bad, but it's going to get better. And this is the best we could do in these trying times. So I hope this fun little podcast with me, Soma, and special guest Scott Wiener of Scott's Pizza Tours brings you a little joy. And we will see you soon. Our talks are the last Wednesday of every month, and you can get tickets at brooklynbrainery.com to view them online. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Hi, everybody. I'm Sarah Lohman. Um, that's Jonathan Soma. I don't know what direction he is in on you. Together, we are masters of social gastronomy. Um, I'm a culinary historian and author of the book, Eight Flavors, The Untold Story of American Cuisine. Soma is the head of the data journalism program. You don't know what I do. Co-founder, yeah, you do. Yeah, you are. I got your number. Co-founder of the Brooklyn Brainery and amateur bubble tea scientist. And tonight, we are bringing you the down and dirty secrets of takeout and delivery. Um, I sadly didn't get delivery. My plan was um, to order delicious like General So's chicken today and somehow I just forgot and ate like sad noodles instead. So I have to make up for that tomorrow, I think. There's still time. There's still time. You call it now. By the time you're done talking and I'm talking, it'll show up. Yeah. That's what I was planning on doing. Talking, it's beer time. Uh, and so maybe that is the time to order take out Chinese food. I'm trying not to eat after 6 p.m. It's one of the few things that like gives my life some sanity. But before 6 p.m., it's a free-for-all. For dinner, um, other than the sad noodles, I just had handfuls of pecans and chocolate chips and just put them in my mouth at the same time because that is how I get through 2020. So what have I been up to? Foof, yeah. foof. I'll get to that later, actually. I think I talk about that at the end of my talk. I'll be able to give a little, little exciting tale of my most recent trips. And on oh, pre-show, okay. I get to talk about all the inhabitants of my apartment. So, yay! So, should we do that? In do you? Well, hold on. I'll go back to sharing. All right. I have such a show for you tonight, everybody. It is a multimedia extravaganza. Get ready. There is a surprise special guest. There is a recording of an 1850s song. There is a minute of a video that is probably boring, but I find it fascinating. I am so excited with what I have to share tonight. So I'm going first. And normally in the middle, we would do a story time, which is like two little shorter things that someone I worked on. But I somehow piled so much shit in my presentation. I was like, Soma, I have to cancel my story time or the show's going to run three hours long. So there's no story time. So it's going to be me and then it's going to be Soma. Soma, what are you talking about? Here's the sad thing. I just have so many like screenshots 
from the internet that it's kind of the opposite of your presentation. Like imagine the least exciting series of slides. I have a couple like charts, not even charts, not even charts. Um, they're like spreadsheets with certain rows highlighted. So it's going to be ideal. It's going to be ideal. I'm talking eh, mostly, let's say, about the economics of takeout and delivery and how like Seamless and Grubhub and all those guys uh, milk some money out of the world. Yeah, I feel like you're underselling this, but I do feel like this is a very hot topic now that a lot of people want to hear about. It and ends, though, with yeah. something that is not that, and it's it's in lieu of story time. I got like five slides at the end that are choice. If you live in New York, if you live in, let's say, the D.C. area, Maryland, Virginia, make sure you stick around for that, even if you've fallen asleep when we get to my charts, because it'll be worth it. Um, okay, so here's us. If you're doing any social media tonight, you can hashtag it OMG MSG. Um, the best way to find out things about us is at facebook.com slash hello MSG. You're also subscribed to our mailing list because you bought a ticket tonight. If you want to unsubscribe, our feelings are not going to be hurt. Take your media whatever way you want to. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, kind of. Um, I'm at, at four pounds flower. Some of us at danger scarf. Um, the couple just quickie things that I wanted to talk about is that um, speaking of cats, we are also have an ongoing fundraiser for Cat Republic, which is Soma's cat rescue organization. And you can get this really adorable Masters of Social Gastronomy tote and profits from every bag go to Soma, which I believe is five bucks a bag. Should we get started? Let's do it. Yeah. Go wild. Oh, is that my whole intro? I think so. Just go wild? Just go. Go nuts. Okay. And now presenting Sarah Lohman of Sarah Lohman. Some of that was shit. It's more difficult on Zoom. It was, it's, you know, it's a little bit more theatrical when we're on StreamYard and YouTube. So maybe next time we'll kind of like up it a little bit. All right. But for um, now, uh, Sarah. Whatever, whatever, whatever. So we're just jumping. So the history of delivery and takeout has a lot to do with what you interpret as delivery or takeout. And I'm going to have a, my, my computer, this is the other disadvantage of doing things online is like my computer now wants me to install a critical update, which doesn't happen when you're doing things live. It's fine. The big advantage is the sweatpants wearing. Um, so let's go all the way back because there are examples of what I would think of as takeout um, really back through ancient human history. One of the earliest is in Pompeii, which some, is that like 72 AD that the volcano bust? No, anybody who knows it, put it in the, um, put it in the chat. 79. That was pretty good. Price is right rules. I nailed that. Thank you so much, Scott. Um, so this is going back about 2,000 years, and in Pompeii, we found preserved thermopylia, 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 something, and they're basically cook shops is how they're also referred to, and they are like takeout food places, and they would have, they would specialize in mulled wine, they would heat and mull wine with spices that you could take out, as well as lentils, meats, or cheeses. So this is like, you're just like, you bop in, all the little holes in these counters are, um, there would be fires underneath, and then there would be maybe like an earthenware vessel on top that would be used to keep keep the food warm. So just like any sort of like counter takeout place where you're like, boop, 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 
give me one of those, one of those, one of those from 2000 years ago. Um, also, there's plenty of evidence that in Aztec markets, um, Aztecs, they were kicking it like 1500 AD. Um, in their markets, there were lots of, as well as, you know, buying food to cook at home, there was pre-made food. Tamales was one of the big, like, takeout foods that you could just grab in the market. Um, also, they would be selling hot chocolate or champurado, which champurado is like a mix of chocolate and cooked cornmeal. Um, but historically, that was more likely made with the, um, the husks of the cacao bean because it was like the cheaper, sort of more filling alternative. So like tasty little, little snacky snacks. Um, even in early America, we had different forms of takeout. Oftentimes, taverns were like the public eating houses, at least for men. But in some like taverns and hotels, there'd be like a woman's dining room, but largely this sort of public eating culture revolved around men, although there might be, there was commonly a female owner. Um, even if it wasn't a married couple, like owning a tavern or owning a bar was something that a woman could do. And you could get meals for takeout, both if you were um, just making a stop on a long carriage ride, or if you wanted to pick something up to have a nice picnic. Um, Charles Dickens, he toured America in 1842. Um, his book about it is called American Notes, and it's well worth a read. It was like a social justice themed trip, as well as this sort of like touring early America, and I find it really fascinating. Um, in one part, he is in Missouri, I think, and he's going to see a piece of authentic prairie. And so before they get in the carriage, they get takeout from a tavern. And there's two options. It's pork and corn fixings and chicken and fancy fixings. So it was like the cheap version with the pork and the more expensive one with like a whole um, roast chicken. So we've always, we've often had some version of takeout available food on the go. In New York City, for example, by the 19th century, when you went to the public markets, this illustration is of Washington Market, which is where Tribeca is today. Um, this was known for the produce that was coming in from Long Island and further afield. If you take a look on the left side of this image, maybe it's the right side for you. Anyway, on one side or the other, you can see bananas. New York was a major port city, so we were getting food from all over the world, but especially produce from the top tropics, even by the 19th century. But mixed in with the vendors of fruits and vegetables, there would be women selling coffee and donuts that you could have a little snack, have a little coffee, have a little something to eat um, while you were browsing the market. Additionally, New Yorkers, um, of course, had street vendors for a very long time. This is a guy that I totally forgot about until I put this talk together. The sweet potato men were really big in 19th century New York, and they would bake sweet potatoes. And what is essentially, as you can see, a um, altered um, chest of drawers that they would put on wheels and then like make a fire in it and then roast the sweet potatoes or store them so that they were warm in different places. And so it was these specialized carts, which really makes me think about like how street vendors today in New York City, they often have their, even though the carts in some ways might look the same from the outside, there, there's no like one street cart that's just being like rolled off a production line somewhere. Like if you're opening a street food business, you go in and you make a, a custom cart. Um, the sweet potato man was like, I know he was around, well, him, but there were lots of sweet potato men. And for whatever reason, a lot of these are gender. Definitely second half of the 19th century, but I wouldn't be surprised if he was earlier too. Because we do have um, plenty of examples of street food vendors from the first half of the 19th century. 
Um, also in the 19th century, you had these night lunch wagons, and these would eventually evolve to become diners, but their purpose is they were providing food for people that weren't on like a regular work schedule. Um, again, a very East Coast. Um, this one, I think the night owl was actually from like uh, New Jersey. Well, a lot of these were produced in New Jersey, but like very New York oriented city that never sleeps even back in the 19th century. So some of these were um, just like adapted wagons that food was served out of. And some of these became like mini dining cars that you would like go in and sit on um, a stool and eat inside. There's this book that I love um, called City Cries, and it's a children's book from the 1850s. It is on Google Books. By the way, if you uh, follow us on Facebook, I'm gonna be posting some of our primary source material over the next couple days. So I'll put up a link to City Cries. It's just so cool. And what it is, it's, it's illustrations of popular street vendors. Uh, I can't remember, I think this is, was between like Philadelphia and New York that was talking about both cities. Um, and it would tell a little story about the street vendor and the food that they sold. And also it would try to replicate their cry as well. One of the most famous street vendors of the 19th century were the hot corn girls or hot corn women. And as you can tell from the image too, she is a woman of color. She is most likely a free black woman who is using food as a way to financial independence and success as many black women did um, in the North. And I love the illustrations in this book, too, because she's also depicted in no way with the caricature that is often used in the 19th century to betray Black women. It's just such an awesome drawing. And the calls of the hot corn women were particularly famous. Um, there's a couple books. This is from um, a book about five points. And it says, one of the best known street traits for girls was selling freshly cooked ears of sweet corn. Here's your nice hot corn, smoking hot, smoking hot, just from the pot cried dozens of girls on the streets of New York when corn was in season. Um, George Templeton Strong was a very famous journalist in the 1860s. Not journalist, journaler. He wrote a very detailed journal in the 1860s that is often used um, like in reference when we're researching that time period. Um, he noted that he heard the cry of the hot corn girls rising at every corner on August and September nights and was often lulled to sleep by its mournful cadence in the distance. So cool. I, when I think of these New York street vendors um, and the calls that they would have, where I see that reflected in like contemporary New York culture is the AM New York people. Like, you know, when it's AM New York, what does it come out on like Wednesdays? And it's like every vendor standing by the subway train, if they're not just flicking it at you, they've got their like own call and their own rhythm. And it's such like this callback and visceral connection to these historical people. Now the hot corn women, women, girls were so notable that there were actually several people who tried to document in music um, their hot corn, the cries of the hot corn women. Um, I reached out to my friend, Dr. Sarah Tomaszewski, who is an American musicologist. She's the first one who told me about this because we often talk about this connection between food and music as ways to talk about the culture of a time period. She, she sent me a couple links, um, but this is the one that caught my eye because it's come by hot corn in the drama, Hot Corn. I am sorry that I didn't look up the plot of the drama Hot Corn, but I'll tell you what, I'll do some research tomorrow. And if I can figure out what Hot Corn was about, I will put it on our Facebook page. But here's what I did do for you. I can't read music. So when I look at this page, I don't know what this sounds like. 
So I reached out to another friend of mine, um, who Emily Fellner Zeig, who happens to have her master's in opera, and asked her if she wouldn't mind recording the hot corn song for me. So I got this email today. So I recorded hot corn one right off the page, note for note, sung called Molto Sentimentio, um, which much feeling and emotion as per composer's instruction. I recorded hot corn two because it's quarantine and I had to waste some time before the debate started. So here we go. The first version is so 19th century. Some of you who followed my work for a while know that like in my high school years and early 20s, I worked in a living history museum in the year 1848 and was so immersed in that time and culture that something like by the first notes of the first version, I was like, oh yeah, that is some parlor music. So here we go. Hot corn. <laughs> in your head. I've been singing it all day. Also, that's what this song is from the 1850s. This is what all music sounded like. Like that. Another song from this era is Home Sweet Home. Like, they're all the same, except for what's his name? Um, Stephen Foster. Like, he's the only one that could write a catchy freaking song, so no wonder his stuff is so popular. So with that, and because Emily had some time to burn, here is Hot Corn to the remix. <laughs> of the voice in the second one is probably more accurate to what you would hear um, women say on the streets of New York. So Emily, by the way, she runs um, a class called Maestro Tales, which is for like four and unders. It's super cute. It's online. At the end of my talk, I'm going to put um, a link to that in the chat as well because she does really cool stuff. So hot corn dropping for you, the new single, whatever. More complete dishes were also sold on the street. Here's the pepper pot woman. Pepper pot is a famous Philadelphia stew made with lots of chili peppers and tripe, made famous by the African-American community there. And you can see that she's got like enamelware bowls because there wasn't any sort of like takeout equipment 
available, you had to like eat these foods there. That's why hot corn was also so popular too, because you didn't have to hang out by the vendor to eat your hot corn. Except there was one sort of, of um, takeout tool. So oysters were huge, especially in New York City. They were eaten by all walks of life, from those who only had enough money to survive on oysters to the very, very richest people in the city. It was a great equalizer and also a vocation where a lot of Irish immigrants and free black men and women, again, were able to find stability, economic stability, power. Um, there were two types of, I mean, there were actually many types of places to eat oysters, but the two main types were sort of these like oyster bars where someone was preparing the oysters for you and you were eating it right there with often a variety of toppings. Think if you've been to maybe PJ Clark's on the Upper East Side, I don't know if they still have their, their oyster bar there, but like um, I did that once at the end of a 19th century pub crawl, which I used to run in the city, and it was like a very visceral connection with the past to just have someone like do some oysters for you in this very like 19th century space. But the other type of um, sort of oyster vendors, they were preparing the oyster meat for you to take home and take to your cook and like consume in a different place. So they could, um, they could do it on the half shell, but you can see that this is just a lot of women who are doing the difficult job of taking the meat out of the oyster. And then you could take them home on what was known as an oyster pail. You can see some sitting in the bin of oysters and you can see the woman standing in the foreground is also carrying them. Although these type of pails had a very specific name, oyster pails were essentially just growlers. And growlers was the form of takeout in New York City throughout the 19th century and even into the 1930s and 40s. And they were just a bucket, a pail. Um, some of them had a lid, some of them didn't. It was considered the child's duty to go get the growler. And the most traditional thing you'd put in a growler is the same thing we put in growlers today, which is beer. But as opposed to like a nice big glass bottle or a crowler in a can uh, in the 19th century, again, through the early 20th century, was just like a sloshy bucket that you filled with beer, which is so, I don't know, pure and ridiculous in some ways to me. Um, but after looking at photos of growlers, which I've known about for a really long time, um, but I'd never like sat down and Googled pictures of growlers, I realized my family has one. This is my grandfather's growler, I now know. He always used it as um, a, a blackberry picking bucket. I'm from Ohio and I live in Ohio currently. And when I was little and it was blackberry season, my grandfather would come over with this bucket to pick blackberries. It's a growler. I am so pumped about this. And all these years I spent as an adult culinary historian and I had no idea. We've never had the lid to it, but it is totally, totally, totally a growler. And I'm so, 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 so excited. Um, interestingly too, growler in America means this um, vessel to carry beer in. Growler in the UK is a euphemism for a vagina. And I have two very good friends that are now married. He is British, and so they spent their first year or so courting online over Skype. And one day that she mentioned that she had on her desk a growler full of quarters, and it was the most confusing sentence he had ever heard. So the other things that you could put in growlers aside from beer is basically any kind of takeout food that you've wanted. One that we know uh, for sure is that you could take a growler to Chinatown in the 19-teens and get it filled with chopped suey. 
Chop suey is sort of um, a Chinese American glop that's made with vegetables, meat, and noodles or beans. As you can see on the right, it can have a lot of different main ingredients. Um, originally, like in the late 19th century, it was often made with chicken giblets, and the name comes from the Cantonese satsue. If anyone speaks Cantonese, I would love a, cor a co correction on the pronunciation, but it essentially means like a collection of a jumble of things. Um, so in some ways, this is like early stir fry, which is a term who was invented by a Chinese American woman to describe um, cooking from the south of China. And in the 19th century, if you were, hang on, I did really good, but I want to read you this quote that I really love. So um, there's a 1903 article that was written about chop suey, and some people say it came from the Times, some people say it came from the Tribune, I haven't tracked down the original. Um, but it, it says, it is the men and women who like to eat after everybody else is abed that pour shekels into the coffers of the man who knows how to make chop suey. Few bohemian gatherings are complete without a pail of chop suey brought fresh and hot from Chinatown. So you can just like do 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 down to Chinatown, bring your growler, get like a big old scoop of chop suey, and then bring it to the party with your bohemian friends in the 19 teens. So really early form of takeout in New York City. Sarah, yes. Sarah. Yes, yes. I feel like we need to bring this back. Okay. Like, granted, you can't use, like, your coffee mugs at, you know, coffee shops anymore because you're going to give everyone COVID. Right. But, like, in the way, like, plastic band, plastic bag band style, why can't we just bring buckets uh, everywhere? That's actually, that's actually kind of a good point. Like, why can't we just show up with our, with our bucket? <laughs> at a restaurant just to... dump the food right in you know <laughs> well food for thought everybody so i'm sure you could design a beautiful um takeout growler that would really work but if you don't but also something we kind of do in a sense because if you google oyster pail you won't get the 19th century ones you'll get this which to be fair was patented in 1894 i think it was invented in like the late 1880s and they're calling it a paper pail but it was most often called a paper oyster pail now you probably recognize the shape of this because it's a chinese food takeout container so this came from the very late 19th century and it was designed as a way to specifically move oysters around. But I think because no one else has like made this connection in the reading I did, but based on what I know, it makes sense to me that if like we were putting, we had our pails and we'd put our oysters, beer or chop suey in, then the sort of Chinese restaurants in Chinatown and New York got the idea of like, oh, well, we could start using the paper pails and then we could just pack it up and be able to Take, take, give it out as takeout right there. So these are really early examples from, I think the early 1930s. These are two movie stars at the time. They originally had a slightly different design, which I like in that it had that sort of like shovel at the end, which made it both really easy to put the food in and then pour it out on a plate in a really neat sort of way. Um, these were made by a company called Full Pack. Um, I don't know exactly when they got that name, but that's where the original patent came from. And in the 1970s, it was a full pack um, designer that put the now iconic, like, thank you and the pagoda on the side in red. 
but you see what I mean? Because you all know the world's number one food pail, the Chinese full pack ones, but also those brown paper ones are used by Whole Foods. So if you've ever gone to like the Whole Foods, you know, hot table thing, you're also using a full pack design. So um, they're everywhere. They have dominated the, the takeout food foldy box industry. If you're eating out of a box, it's probably a full pack box. That should be a better tagline, just kidding. Why also in those stock photos did they linger on that drip of cheese for so long? That was so weird on that burger, it's disgusting. So a little, so we've covered takeout a little bit. Um, a lot of uh, takeout originates from both street vendors but also Chinese food restaurants. Delivery, however, seems to uh, originate within pizza. And uh, I read this really great a Time Magazine article, which I'll also link on the Facebook page. I loved it because it linked to a lot of primary force sources. But one of the things they put forward is this place called Casa de More was, they said, one of the earliest instances of free delivery in 1944. And I'm guessing that that's like why people think it's this one place is because the restaurant probably advertises that, but also there are some existing menus that advertise free delivery. Um, but being a food historian, I was a little skeptical um, at this declaration that delivery started with this one restaurant, which is in Los Angeles, by the way. And so what do you do when you're skeptical about something that involves pizza history? Well, you text your friend Scott, Scott Wiener of Scott Pizza's Tours, who knows more about pizza and the pizza industry than any one other person on the planet. So I texted Scott and he said, no, I don't think it started there. And so you know what? I just decided to invite Scott on to talk a little bit about pizza delivery. Scott, welcome to the party. I am delighted to be at the party. This is such a treat. Thanks for having me. Okay, so you just go and just tell me when you want the next slide. Oh, sure. Well, so of course, you know, I got this text from Sarah and my first thought is, well, 1944, that's definitely late to the game, but I love how these things work, not just in pizza, but everywhere in food, where somebody makes a claim, they print it on a menu, somebody else writes an article quoting that menu, and then suddenly it becomes known fact. In recent memory, uh, uh, quite a few things have been overturned. The origin of some of the earliest pizzerias in America, that history has changed recently. Um, even the history of Hawaiian pizza has changed, which was always based on a, something printed on a menu, but here we have it, you know, this, this, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, Sarah, but. Is it still <laughs> Canadian? No. Scott! Where can we find out more? You know what it is? Wait, uh, let me see if I can show you really quickly, because I do happen to have the image really close by, and I'll see this if I can show you. This is a trivia question here. recently. Yeah, so uh, I found, okay, you ready for this? Yeah, this I'm ready. Here it is. This is going to. No, maybe, maybe it's not possible for me to share it. Anyway, I'll just tell you, you this. Send me, can you send that link to me or you can put the file in the chat or you can even text it to me. Whatever it happens, I'll, I'll be able to share it during. Sure, I, you know, and I've tweeted about it recently. You can go find okay. it. But somebody else on Twitter posted up, hey, look at this weird menu with all these weird pizzas in 1957 in Portland, Oregon. <gasps> weird pizzas in Portland, Oregon, no problem. 1957 actually sounds kind of, normal. Uh, the story, the Greek, the Canadian story that Sarah is referring to is that Sam Pompalos, uh, th this guy who, this Greek immigrant to Ontario, Canada, 
invented the Hawaiian pizza by adding pineapple to pizza in 1962. Now, there are, is actually another California menu, a Los Angeles menu, a place called Baroni's that claims to have invented that Hawaiian pizza in 1954, but there's no evidence. So we have to erase that from memory. But this 1957 ad for this pizzeria in Portland, Oregon called Pizza Jungle clearly lists a Hawaiian pizza with papaya and pineapple on it, totally giving evidence that predates the Canadian story. So I'm going to just put it in the chat for those of you who want to see it. I'm also just shocked because yeah. I do a trivia on, on Mondays and Thursdays, trivial, trivial dispute, really great trivia if you want to get in on it. They did a whole pizza category, and that was one of the questions, where was pineapple pizza? But now there's been new research. It's amazing. The one I did get right, though, is they asked what made Ohio Valley pizza unique, and I'm assuming you know, Scott. Is it the cut? No, <gasps> it's ingredients. It's so gross. Pizza in the Ohio Valley, they cook the, they cook the fucking bread and then they just put cold pepperoni and shredded mozzarella on top. How insane is that? I, yeah, I don't, it doesn't count. I feel like um, cold cheese on pizza has been having like a, like a thing the past, you know. It? That's an Ohio Valley thing. I noticed earlier, and I meant to bring this up, that the ACLU of Ohio is here tonight, which I am so flattered. I give you money every month. Thank you for fighting for my rights. But maybe a court case against that travesty of a pizza is necessary. Just think about it. Anyway, coming back to the topic, who started free delivery, Scott? Yeah, so there we go. So, so uh, it's hard to trace down the records because pizzerias didn't really print menus, but a lot of them did print ads. So what you're looking at right now from 1937 is not a delivery. Uh, well, it, it says delivery on it, and it's a bread bakery that's also selling spaghetti and pizza that's offering prompt delivery, but it doesn't say anything about free delivery. And I think that's what Sarah's really going for. So I dug a little bit more, and you know, anytime I'm looking at something like this, of course the thought comes to my head, I've seen an ad, it said free delivery, it surprised me at how early it was, but then I, I don't categorize the ads. I categorize them by year. So of course I couldn't find the one from the thirties that I really thought I could find, but I refound this other new one, which if you go to the next slide from 1935, also in New Jersey, but that's probably because newspapers.com has a lot of New Jersey newspapers. But if next slide, yeah, exactly. The Scala Bakery, uh, in uh, Long Branch, New Jersey, clearly advertises free delivery here. They're making Italian and French bread. They are a pizzeria napolitana. They, at that time, pizzerias were Neapolitan pizzerias. That's what they were. Um, and I love that it describes in the ad what a pizzeria napolitana means. And that means that they're making Italian tomato pie. That's like the English version, not the translation, but the version. And, uh, and there, there they go. We know there's evidence of a place that's making Neapolitan pizza that's offering free delivery in 1935. 1935. Um, do you want me to just go to the next image or do you, does it need any introduction? Because it's amazing. I don't remember what the next image is. Oh, yes, I I do. Do. Okay. sorry. This and is not it, what I was thinking of. Yeah, and, and also in the chat, I see Krista is saying that her dad called it tomato pie. Mm -hmm. Tomato pie is a euphemism for pizza. Mm -hmm. uh, some people think that they mean two different things but it's really just a straight euphemism for, for pizza. The same thing as like in New Haven, you might call it abits. It's just pronunciation and dialect. It's all the same word. But the image that you're looking at right now, talking about takeout, 
This is takeout in the 1800s. So these, the one on the left is from a book uh, by Frances Bouchard, which was pr uh, printed in 1866, but written in the 20 years leading up to that. So long time period to write a book, just so everybody knows, 20 years sometimes to write a book. There you go. This is a great image called Il Pizzaiolo, and it's got this, not the pizza maker, it's got the person selling pizza, at that time was called a pizzaiolo, on the street, cutting up pizza and selling it by the slice. Uh, and you didn't even have to pay for it. You could buy it on credit. Not only is this early evidence of takeout food, but it's also probably the first evidence of buying on credit. They called it oji a otto, today for eight. You could eat it today and pay for it within eight days. And if you ever saw the uh, 1954 Sophia Loren film, Laurel Dinopoli, The Gold of Naples, it's all about a pizza maker. And right in the front window, it's a big sign that says, Oji a Otto, they're frying pizza. They were frying it back then, selling it on the street, and you could pay for it eight days later. So there's a take I also love how these, like, pizza, like, it's so sort of active in this moment. It's so... It's so, like, especially that one, the opening scene is so Yeah, great. yeah. Anyway, okay. the next slide is delivery. And this is, I can't say if it was free, although it makes sense that it would have been delivery. The photo is from the mid-1900s, but this method was being used in the 1800s. This is a device called a stufa. I actually have one right behind me on this shelf over here. It is really? a, hold on, I'll get it for you. I'm going to stop the share and pin your video so we can see this thing. Because it looks like a trash can or a drum. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm offended by what you just said, but, you know, it's okay. So a stufa is you'd either carry it around on your head, and there's a lot of great photos if you go looking online for it. Like, there's a good photo of a guy on his bike riding around with this on his head. Or you have it strapped all on your shoulder, and then you walk around with it, and here's the way it works. Copper cylinder, conical top steam escapes from these side pieces and then you would take the pizzas and fold them over so a round pizza becomes like a half moon and you stack them up inside the stufa it keeps them warm while the steam escapes through these openings so this is early pizza delivery and this was how pizza was sold there was no such thing as a pizzeria until in the late 19th century before that pizza was being made in in bakeries and pizzerias, and then sold off on the street by either the guys on the street with the knives or the stufa. Now, folding over the pizza does not make it a calzone. A calzone is when it's folded over and then baked. But when you take a pizza and bake it and then fold it over, you open it back up and it's still a pizza. Remember, remember this thing. I always tell people when they, when they get into arguments about what should or should not be on a pizza, when you add something to a pizza, it cannot make it not a pizza. It makes it a pizza with something on it. So a pizza folded over does not undergo a transformation. It simply undergoes a formation. You open it back up and there you go. Also keep in mind that early pizzas were not eaten the way we think of it today, where you would get a whole pizza and just work from one end to the other. They would fold it in half one way and half the other way, and they would eat it like this. It's called pizza portafolio. Portafolio means wallet. It's the wallet-shaped pizza. That's the way they would eat it on the street. So if you ever go to a Neapolitan pizzeria today in Naples, when they're out on the street, they will sell you pizza portafolio. They fold it up, they hand it to you in a piece of paper, and then the rest of your day is bliss, even though you've burned your mouth because it traps in a lot of heat. 
Um, I don't know if everyone has been watching me and Soma on video, but you can watch our mind getting blown again and again and again. Um, last thing, Scott, you mentioned to me that the modern pizza box is specifically designed for delivery. Yeah, so this is what's thrilling about the pizza box and delivery and this whole mess is that when pizza was being delivered in the 1930s, uh, it was most likely being delivered on a corrugated sheet and a paper bag around it. So the pizza's put onto a corrugated sheet, slid into a paper bag, the edge is rolled over, and then you get it. If you've ever been to Grimaldi's or Giuliana's under the Brooklyn Bridge, that's the way that they do it today. Federici's in Freehold, New Jersey, that's the way they still do it. There's still a few old school holdouts. Problem is, when you start stacking them, it doesn't work so well. So when we really hit the stride of pizza in the 40s and 50s, the cardboard box became more widely used. Cardboard boxes were probably used in the 30s, but not as widely as they were used in, during and then really after the Second World War. And that thin paperboard cardboard box, that flimsy one that like most of us probably grew up with that, it underwent a transition through the 80s and really hit hard in the 90s when we ended up with the corrugated pizza box, which is built for structure so you can stack them. And also because it's three layers of paper, it's an outer liner, an inner liner, and a fluted medium in between the two liners. Traps tons and tons of heat, and that's it's designed to keep the pizza warm and to deliver it better. So yeah, pizza boxes designed for delivery and made popular and common by Tom Monahan of Domino's Pizza. Uh, Scott, Scott Wiener, everybody. The pizza person such a historian. Scott, plug your, plug your everything and then drop some links in the chat too. Absolutely. It's been a totally honor, total honor to be here once again. All my information is at Scott's Pizza Tours on Instagram at Scott's Pizza Tours. But I also want everybody to get it out there and support. Slice Out Hunger is the nonprofit that I run. Uh, we, are, we support hunger relief organizations all around the country through pizza events and campaigns. Currently, we're doing something called Pizza Versus Pandemic, where we're sending pizza to hospital workers and healthcare workers who are fighting the virus and also sending pizza to uh, shelters to help that out. And uh, I have a new website called Pizza Resource Center for all your home pizza making needs, equipment, books, all that kind of cool stuff. But thanks again for having me. I, I love this. I love being at MSG. Such a pleasure. And Scott has a whole host of um, baking classes too. So like, yeah, he's going to drop all the links. Please, please, please check it out. And this is also such a great transition because speaking of the 1950s, that's when we start to see a lot more takeout happening um, for it to be more common for the day to day. Um, this is also a trade advertisement for the boxes that they're eating out of. Um, and it talks about how your boxes represent your business. What's interesting though is even though you could get takeout from a lot of different restaurants in the 50s, you often had to call ahead sometimes as much as a week to order the meal. So we hear a lot about the kind of TV dinners that get sold in the grocery store and frozen and go into your oven and how that was all new. But restaurants were also offering TV dinners for you and your family to eat at home in the suburbs as well. Um, of course, this is also the time that fast food restaurants take off, mostly in Southern California. Southern California is the home of fast food. We've got our McDonald's, our Burger Kings, our Taco Bells. Um, I'm trying to think, In-N-Out comes in there somewhere too. But that's a whole nother talk. And there's also been so much research about that. 
And there's a part of me that's like, I don't want to talk about this. There's been so much work done about it, but isn't this what people want to hear about? And it's like, no, hopefully not, because I'm just going to tell them about really, really obscure things that I find fascinating and other people might hate. So let's go read a book, go watch that movie with um, uh, Michael Keaton about the founder, founder of McDonald's or the guy who stole the idea from McDonald's. It's really fascinating. And there's a bunch of great books that you can read, but here's another great book you can read that I want to recommend because I'm going to tell a really amazing story from it. The Fortune Cookie Chronicles by Jennifer Eight Lee is an amazing book about the history of Chinese food in America, full of great stories, so well written, so much incredible research. And one of the stories that has stuck with me is the story of the Empire Szechuan Gourmet. Um, the Empire Szechuan opened in, wait, I'm going to tell you the exact date, 1976 by a woman named Misa Chang, who said in an interview, basically, like as an immigrant woman, you don't have a lot of options. So you often turn to food as a way to make money here in America. And she opened her restaurant on the Upper West Side and people weren't coming. And so she said, well, people aren't going to come to me. I'm going to come to them. And so she printed up a bunch of menus, including the one that you see in front of you. And she walked around the Upper West Side and snuck into apartment buildings to slide them under apartment doors. A noise that if you've lived in New York in any amount of time, you're familiar with the sound of the as a menu slides under your door. She started this. She said within two hours of walking around town and delivering these menus, she got a phone call, delivery for an egg roll and wonton soup. And since she didn't know this was going to work and hadn't hired any delivery boys, she walked it over herself. Um, at the peak of Empire Szechuan, they had, I think, six different um, outlets in all uh, different parts of Manhattan. And they are really the ones that started menus um, in restaurants, both in New York City and then beyond, and then the option of getting free delivery. But of course, since the 70s, things have changed. We now do most of our ordering, as Soma's going to talk about, from places like Seamless or Grubhub or DoorDash. And so I got a little bit curious about when this started. And so it needs more work and needs more research. But I just had to share this article that I found from 1997 from the New York Times. And I love reading New York Times articles about things that are amazing and new at the time that the art, whatever. This is an art, the earliest article I can find about an online food delivery system. And I'm going to read to you a little bit of it. New York Times, 1997. Okay. Not too long ago, ordering takeout almost always meant rummaging through a kitchen drawer for a paper menu from the local Chinese restaurant, voting in the order and running out to pick up a bunch of cardboard containers filled with lukewarm food. That's basically like the thesis statement for the last 45 minutes of what I've been talking to you about. Things have changed. Look, for example, at the activities on a recent Saturday night here at the home of Clive Ginsburg, a financier, and his wife, Eva. Mrs. Ginsburg is one of the founders of Westchester Menus, a new online service. On this frigid evening, she and her partner, Colin Goldberg, a computer consultant, and his wife, Ruth, a psychologist, were deciding on dinner. After drinks around the fireplace, they gathered in the kitchen, opened Mrs. Ginsburg's laptop, and began to scrutinize their options. Dot, dot, dot. And out it went to the ordering, seemingly as much fun as the eating would be. Finally, a feast of 14 dishes was ordered by computer. 20 minutes later, it was delivered to the door by a service called Cuisine Express. Even the young man who brought the food, Jacob Siegelman, was enthused when he saw the Ginsburg computer set up. 
Oh, cool. A website for menus, said Mr. Siegelman. Seligman, excuse me, a music major at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, who works during school vacations. That's pretty advanced. What is exact, which is exactly what Mrs. Ginsburg and Mr. Goldberg intended. Both believe the internet and online communication are here to stay, and both feel the computers are being increasingly used to make mundane tasks easier. You can visit the website, to, web is capitalized, site is not in its two words, just to get an idea of what different restaurants are offering, what their prices are, and so forth. And then you can go to the restaurant. You can order, or you can order on the computer and then pick up the food from the restaurant, or you can have it delivered. We think it's great for business lunches at the office, evenings at home when two career couples are just too tired and busy to make dinner, or for festive evenings when guests at your home can have a chance to look through more than 40 menus and pick and choose as part of the evening's activities. I think it's the whole, like, we love looking to the 1950s and, like, at World's Fairs, like, food of the future. Like, this is that for Grubhub in 1997. And I'm just obsessed with the whole article, and I'm going to also put it on our Facebook page as I keep saying. Of course, I went to westchestermenus.com and was super amped because for a second I thought it still existed, or at least that 1997 website existed. It did not. It was just like a generic landing page, but I did find Mrs. Ginsburg's um, LinkedIn page with her, like, it, this, it went for four years. It went from 1997 to 2001. And no, I haven't reached out to her yet, but I obviously want to. I want to know how this ended, when she decided to get rid of it, how it went, and what it was like to be the precursor to Grubhub, that they, like, buy her out. I don't know. Maybe a whole another book, maybe an article. I just haven't done it yet. And I don't really have an ending other than that's it. <laughs> That's all. Did I finish before eight? It's 8.02. That's not too bad. I told you this was an all singing, all dancing extravaganza of takeout and delivery. Did you even see it coming? Did you see it coming, Selma? That was amazing. There was so much multimedia. It was just, it blows away what I'm about to teach everybody. But you don't have a producer anymore. It's just you and me. Patty the cat. Impossible. Impossible. All right, well, I'm ready to drink a beer and shut up and listen to you talk for a while, so... Um, yeah, I poured a little brandy into my bubble tea, so... <laughs> that's, that's such a... It's up. all I had. It's all I had. It was, it was my only option. It was my only option. How is it? Fine. Tastes all right. Okay. Every, everything's okay. And the cat just sneezed on me, which is delightful. Um, open up the chat. Working okay? Because I'm doing something crazy right now with how I'm That's sharing good. it. Right? Everybody out in the world can see it too? Great. We're solid. We're perfect. Everything is good. Um, so, I'm sorry, Soma. I just have been sworn. But DJK just said Westchester Menus is on the Wayback Machine. There's one ping in 90, 1997 and it's glorious. Could you put a link up? Because I am desperate to see it and so, so excited. Okay, and I'm also going to drop some links to the other things I mentioned. I see um, Scott's Pizza Tours is up there. Oh, my God. So this link to Westchester Menus is there, and I'm also going to drop links to Maestro Tales. Okay. It's nice. It's, it actually looks very, very good for being a website from 1997. You want to go and share it? There's a link in chat. There's a link in chat. It's click pretty it. good. Okay, I'll share it. I'll share it. Well, the menu Let's on the see. left is a little hard to read. While you're doing that, I'm gonna sh I'm going to uh, 
put in the last link, which is to Maestro Tales. Just in All case right, shared. There we go. That is wonderful. And that is just Westchester. I mean, you got to start somewhere, right? No better place. Oh. No better place. I'm glad someone found it. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Okay, go on, Soma. All right, let's get ready to party. Um, <clears throat> all right, we are going to talk about, obviously, obviously. Um, oh no, how can I go to the next slide? There we, oh, I turned off my keyboard because this cat right here, Jack is really all about walking on my keyboard right now. Okay, so uh, let's talk. Let's talk delivery. Um, let's talk about all of this. Okay, when you order delivery, people in the chat right now, what do you use to order? Just type type it on in. Type in your your favorite. Are you a seamless person, a DoorDash, a Postmates, an Uber Eats. Seamless, seamless. Wow, did Seamless pay everyone to show up? And just, I mean, I previously only used Seamless, but I just started using something else. Um, <clears throat> and then I'll tell you all about that later. But yeah, like we got, we got a million options despite the fact that everyone seems to use Seamless. Um, and there's, you know, they're all kind of the same, but all really kind of different. Um, the issue is that, uh, who here has ever ordered from the restaurant itself within the past like year? You ever call up the restaurant and you're like, I'd like to place an order. Yes. Yeah. So I am terrified by delivery. I think it's super weird to have someone bring something to my house. Uh, and so I love to just call and order things and then go pick them up to avoid the weirdness of delivery. And I don't know why I have a problem with that. Like my friend Jen hates getting cabs because it's like weird, someone's driving you around. I feel the same way about delivery, but that changed recently and I'll tell you at the end uh, what happened. So we got a lot of different options. And so why don't deliveries do it or why don't restaurants do it themselves, right? Like why do they have a middleman like Seamless or Grubhub or DoorDash do the delivery for them? So. Delivery is just like a whole second business unto itself. Uh, Cause like you gotta manage more people, there's less controlled environments. There's a lot of things that can go wrong and get more complaints. It's like, how often do you see people being like, oh, this was terrible. I ordered from the restaurant and it took, you know, five hours to show up. And you're like, ah, oh, that didn't have anything to do with the food. And above all, above all else, kind of, uh, math is also a big issue with doing delivery. So it's a kind of uh, math that is so important that it has its own Wikipedia page called the traveling salesman problem. And it's the idea that if you are a uh, salesman and you are traveling to a bunch of cities and each different city has an amount of time between each city and how long it takes you to get there, in order to figure out the best routes between all of these cities or between all these deliveries, in order to visit all of them and come back, making your deliveries in the most efficient time. It is NP hard. And you're like, what does that mean? And I means it's very difficult for computers to do. Uh, you don't know whether you've picked the best route uh, unless you've basically kind of looked at all of the other possible routes. So the more different deliveries you have to make, it gets really unwieldy to see if you've done the best one. Honestly, though, that's not really why people don't 
do delivery themselves. Um, it's just because it's another business that you have to run on top of your business beyond just like dealing with how many carrots you need to order for a day. Um, but yeah, when you see all this stuff about we're a tech company, uh, we write, do a bunch of machine learning all the time. This is the kind of problem that they're tackling resource allocation to kind of take all of these drivers and all these orders and all these restaurants and optimize, optimize, optimize in order to have everything get delivered in the right amount of time. <clears throat> and apparently you have to pay a bunch of people a billion dollars and like have a toxic company culture in order to make it happen. So mom and pop restaurants just aren't going to do it. And if they do, you know, more power to them, they can do it in a really dense place like New York City, but outside of here, you know, it's, it's more problematic. Um, <clears throat> so if you are a company that only does delivery though, the only thing you do is delivery, that's all you have to care about. All you have to care about is I'm going to pick some stuff up. I'm going to drop some stuff off, right? Doesn't seem that complicated. You know, there's money side, there's all that. You don't have to think about food. You don't have to think about freshness. Uh, all you have to do is think about picking things up and dropping things off. So the easiest way to do this, the easiest way to get into the delivery business is just use, have one delivery, right? You pick a bunch of stuff up at one place and you drop a bunch of stuff off at another place. And that's actually how Seamless got started. When Seamless got started, this is also from the Wayback Machine. This is Seamless Web. Uh, this was the original version of Seamless and it was for corporate ordering uh, for like lunch orders and catering. So the idea is instead of delivering to a million people all around a town, all you do is say, look, I'm going to pick up a bunch of sandwiches from the sandwich place and I'm going to bring them to your corporate building. And it's like 40 sandwiches. So I'm going to make a bunch of money and it's going to be amazing. And you're like, how do I know that seamless web is not like a cool modern business? And I say, look at that clip art of that man, because not only is he holding like a, the manual feed uh, printer paper, but that, shot from the top with like the big head and someone looking stupid is just all 90s clip art was that was all everything ever was with someone being like what looking up at the camera so um you couldn't actually order from seamless as an individual until 2005 so this went on for a long time um <clears throat> and it turns out that even now you're like oh no my business opportunity i was so excited from the slide i was gonna start a delivery business for food and it was going to be all catering. It was going to be great, but now we can't compete anymore. It's not true. It's not true. These bulk order opportunities still exist and you can exploit them. So there's a place in New York called Flushing and it is a Chinatown and it is an excellent Chinatown. I live in Sunset Park Chinatown, um, which is not the best Chinatown. Probably Flushing Chinatown is the best. Um, then there's also Manhattan Chinatown, which is not the most exciting Chinatown, I might say. So if you work in Manhattan and you want to eat food, are you going to go to Manhattan Chinatown? No, because A, you're not going to like go from Midtown all the way down there. There's a cat playing with a toy and I'm going to steal that toy from it because it is destroying my brain. It's a very big toy, so. Sorry, Jack. All right, if this falls on my head, uh, so it goes. So, okay, out in Flushing, you got like all kinds of food. It's, it's way out on the seven train, um, but there's, you know, everything is super Chinese there and it's amazing and it's great. And so what do you do if you work in Midtown Manhattan, but you're like, you know what, for lunch, I want food from Flushing. I want that really good Chinese food. 
Um, well, you could get it, you know, go out there on the weekend and like buy a bunch of stuff and put it in your fridge, but that would be terrible. Um, what you do is you go on WeChat and you use uh, a WeChat app called YBB. And what they do is they place bulk orders uh, at, usually it's like, it's maybe they have three restaurants featured every day and you just place an order there. And then as you can see in this picture, they just drive up in a van where they've shopped for a bunch of people in Midtown and you just schedule a pickup at one of these pickup places. So instead of leaving the office and like going to <laughs> flushing and then coming back an hour later, uh, all you do is you go to this van and this guy gives you your food and it's delightful. Um, <clears throat> so until Trump has his way and bans WeChat, uh, if you already are set up with WeChat, uh, you can use this app and you can get a bunch of food. So instead of doing individual orders uh, to you know, a bunch of different places, you're taking all these orders, taking them from you know, one to three different restaurants and delivering them to specific pickup spots in Midtown, New Jersey, other places like that. It's great. <clears throat> but eventually you're gonna wanna deliver food to individual people. So you, even though for like Uber, they're like, go to this pickup spot and then you know, we'll pick you up. You'll do that to get in a cab but if a pizza person was like, hey, like go two blocks away and then I'll hand you your pizza and then you can walk home, you're not gonna order a pizza from there anymore, sorry. Um, so if you have individual orders going to individual people, like how are you gonna make your money? And the answer is a million kind of sketchy ways. Some more above, uh, uh, some that are more positive seeming than others, shall we say. So you can either pull it directly from the, yes, Sarah, were you gonna say something? Above the board, above the board. Above the board, thank you, thank you. It's, it's all the brandy and the, the bubble tea. Um, <clears throat> so you can either pull it from the customer by charging them delivery fees, or you can pull it from the restaurant by charging them a cut of whatever people order. So usually it's a percentage of the order. Um, usually it's like 25 to 30%, which seems like an insanely high number, and I, I think that it is. Um, but as a result, when you order things from an app like Grubhub, Uber Eats, something like that, usually the prices are higher than they are if you go into the restaurant. So initially, initially, places would say, no, you can't do that. We have to have all the prices be the same as walk-in. And they're like, you're taking 30% of our spend. Like, you need to cut us some slack here. So eventually, basically everyone relented because they wanted to keep all the businesses on their services. They said, sure, charge, charge whatever you want. Like $3 or more, $10 or more, it's fine, it's okay. So the New York Times uh, wrote a piece that I feel like should have been 10 times longer than it was, where they say they took the same order and they placed it on a bunch of different apps to compare the prices. And so the first thing they did, was they ordered two turkey sandwiches from Subway for delivery. And I don't know, like, does anyone order delivery from Subway? Like, it didn't seem like the most usual thing that someone did. Like, I love Subway, I worked at Subway, like, Subway is great, but if that's what you're ordering, if that's why you're going on Seamless, like, uh, just up your game a little bit. So if we look at this, Grubhub, the markup is about 25%, DoorDash, 46%, Postmates, 63%, and Uber Eats, 91%. It costs 91% more to order on Uber Eats than just walk into the restaurant. So $25 instead of $13. That's, that's pretty rough. Um, and then 
And then the other one they did was a Panda Express order for like a family pack of food that's $39 at the restaurant. And again, it's much more expensive everywhere and Grubhub ends up having the best prices. There's also a few other ones mixed in where like, I tried to order from like Little Sichuan and blah, blah, blah. And that was like, oh, I can relate to this because it's like a normal restaurant, not like Subway or Panda Express. Like, I don't know. We're in New York City. Seems like weird places to order from. But the best part of the article was at the end where they get really moralizing, like consider cooking your own meal. Like you lazy fucks, like go into your kitchen and just cook something. And you're like, I, I mean, sure, sure. Like, I'm sorry, I feel, I feel terrible. Like you get to the end and you were so excited that you thought it was about all of these services scamming you. Chicken with a side of vegetables. Fuck you. Roasted yeah. No, I want General Tso's. I want to eat an entire pizza and then feel bad about myself afterwards with your fresh chicken with a side of vegetables. Go home. I mean, I don't know what I don't know what to tell you, Sarah. I don't know what to tell you. Just consider cooking your own meal for, for once, you lazy slob. Um, so, when you're trying to make money as one of these delivery businesses, um, so you can charge the customer more with delivery fees and things like that. Uh, but outside of just charging more, the two ways you can make money is changing the split you have with the restaurant or also kind of optimizing or, or paying less money to the people who are delivering the food. So if there's a certain amount of money you're gonna make, what if you just pay them less? Uh, and so that's what most of these places started with. Um, here's a really long thing about Uber Eats where they initially offered people, I believe this was in London, uh, 20 pounds per hour to do delivery, which sounds pretty good. But this is what happens when you have venture capital, is you can just burn a ton of money, get a bunch of market share, drive everyone else out of business. No one else can, no one else wants to like work for Domino's because they can make 20 pounds an hour work for Uber Eats. But as Uber Eats became more popular, they started to kind of switch things up and they said, no, you'll get 3.30 per delivery, plus one pound per mile, plus a $5 trip award, oh wait, let's make it a four pound trip award on weekday lunches and weekend dinners, but three pounds on weekday dinners and weekend lunches and not give you a trip award outside of that. And it's like, what? Like, do I need a PhD to understand how much money I am making from Uber? And kind of the answer is yes. Um, what they do for a lot of this stuff is they'll charge you, uh, or the way they'll pay you is they're paying you as a contractor so you end up paying a lot more taxes out of the end and things like that. So if you go on Reddit and you find people talking about whether they would like to work for Uber Eats or Domino's or a lot of people who've worked for both of them, they are so fired up about it. And they're like, Uber Eats, I don't have to have a uniform. I don't have to have a schedule. I work when I want. You do have to pay more taxes because you're paid as a contractor, but you also don't have to deal with coworkers. And people are like, man, like your sociopathic manager at Domino's, like I would much rather get paid less working for Uber Eats, driving around more than having to like deal with that shithead. And you're like, that's that's reasonable, sure. Um, whereas if you work for Domino's, you get an hourly wage, you know how much you're making, but there's time where you're just like hanging out of the store, doing nothing, waiting for some orders to come out and you're kind of get bossed around by other people. So, you know, there were a lot of people who said in terms of money, you will make more money at Domino's, but in terms of like, the way you feel about your life uh, and the kind of freedom you have, you can work for Uber Eats. Like, is it worth it? Personal decision, kind of, I guess. Uh, when Uber Eats and these things first launched, 
there was a huge exodus from traditional delivery people like Domino's. And then eventually they're like, oh, this is kind of shitty compared to the job I had before. And so now they're all moving back to the hourly wages and kind of like predictableness of Domino's. Um, this is Pizza Net. Uh, it is where you could buy pizza on the internet, but is also from uh, The Net. Uh, wonderful, wonderful Sandra Bullock film. And then it inspired something called Cyber Slice, which was a pizza delivery service where you, or you could order pizza through the internet. And Steve Jobs was the first person to order pizza on it. Amazing, amazing. So <clears throat> when you are this delivery company, instead of squeezing the drivers, which you're gonna do anyway, you can also squeeze each one of these individual restaurants for more money. So like I said, average fee is about 25%. But if you're something like McDonald's, they will say, oh, McDonald's, you know, we'll make your fee 15% because so many people are going to be ordering from McDonald's. McDonald's gets, I think, 3% of its revenue from delivery. It's not that high, but it's higher than I thought it would be. Um, and so it ends up being small businesses that actually get screwed. And what happens is... Uh, the restaurant's like, oh no, I'm making less money. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And they say, hey, you can advertise with us and then you can make more money. So if you give us a little bit of advertising spend, we'll push you higher up in the rankings and then you'll make more sales. And so every single one of these food delivery systems also has like an advertising platform built into it. So pay more, get pushed up to the page. Um, so even if it costs more to deliver more orders, in theory, you're making it up on, uh, on volume. So it's kind of like how Google is just serves you to, uh, like in theory, they're a search engine, but actually they're just somewhere where you go to look at advertisements. And it's the same thing with something like Grubhub or DoorDash, where sure, they want all of these businesses on their platform so they can sell food and make money through a delivery fee, but they also say, hey, now that you're on our platform, let's charge you more money to kind of elevate you. And you're like, okay, that sounds reasonable. I'm like, yeah, it does sound reasonable, but they don't stop there. Yes, it is a Google search results page. It's a joke because I looked for marketing stock photo and then you get an ad for Shutterstock at the top, lol. So if you wanted to get some Thai food in Annandale, because for some reason you don't eat Korean food, um, you're like, great, I'm searching for this, you know, Thai food place. And then thank you for the lull. Um, you get this place and you're like, okay, great. I am not going through Grubhub in order to order from them. I'm going to go to their actual website. I'm going to order on their actual website and everything is going to be wonderful. And they're not going to get like the lead generation cut. Because if you went to Grubhub and searched for Thai food and then clicked them and then ordered, Grubhub's going to take more money. But if you go on their website and then click like an order now, and then it sends you to Grubhub, Grubhub's like, okay, okay, we'll charge you less money because the lead came from you, not from us. You're only using us uh, for, for the uh, fulfillment. But then you're like, you know what? Maybe you, you know, you're on a road trip and you're like, I don't really want to eat Thai food and I'm going to want to drive five more hours and I want a novelty burger in Newark. Because like, look at that burger. So delightful, amazing. Um, but then you drive a little bit more and you're like, no, I want to go to this, this Saigon subs place, which oddly has the same picture as that Thai place from before in Annandale, Virginia, um, despite the fact that it's in New Jersey. And also all these web pages kind of look the same. Isn't that kind of weird? And it turns out 
that even though these are not at grubhub.com, these are all Grubhub web pages. These web pages are not run by Saigon Subs and Cafe, not run by Novelty Burger, not run by the Sushi and Draft House. What happens is Grubhub, they got in trouble for this. They went out and they bought thousands of domain names for restaurants that were on their platforms. And then they just set up web pages, even if the web page, if a web page for that restaurant already existed, so that when you search for this restaurant, instead of going to the restaurant's homepage, you would end up going to the Grubhub sponsored webpage, and then they would have to pay more for the order because it was coming through Grubhub, not coming through their website. They would even buy ads and stuff to kind of push them up above the real restaurant's webpage. Yeah, it is dirty. It's pretty fucked up. But here's the thing. That's not the worst thing that they did. If you scroll down on these web pages, you're like, oh, Molly Hatchet's sub shop. I'm just going to bypass Grubhub completely because I know this is a scam. I'm going to call them at 386-310-1213. But then you scroll down to the bottom of mollyhatchetsubshop.com and it's 386-492-2981, which is a different phone number. So that first phone number, when you call it, you are not dialing into the restaurant. You are dialing into Grubhub, which then redirects the call to that business. And then they use machine learning and regression analysis in order to decide whether that phone call resulted in a sale. And if they believe it resulted in a sale, they then charge uh, the sub shop money for that sale. They, don't, they didn't listen to your phone call. They didn't look at the orders. They just say, yeah, you know, literally what they did is, uh, despite the fact that they talk about machine learning and regression, if the phone call lasts for more than 45 seconds, they charge the business like an order was made. So if you were calling to ask about a late delivery or about allergies or about literally anything, um, you get screwed if you're the, the business because they say, oh no, what you should do is at the end of every day, just go through all the phone calls and go through all the orders and just make sure that you don't get dinged for anything that you shouldn't have gotten dinged from. Um, and it's so fucked up that they're the uh, subject of a class action lawsuit. I think it's still going on now. Um, yeah, crazy. So it, never call a restaurant based on a number from a Grubhub page because they will still be charged. It's wild, it's wild. Um, and it, I mean, does it end there? Sure, kind of, a little bit. Uh, the best thing you can ever do because Grubhub is a public company, you can read their shareholder letters and they're all amazing. They're amazing. Um, the funniest part about all of this is who here uses sometimes something other than Seamless? Like maybe sometimes you do, right? Because it literally doesn't matter. All you do is search the name of the restaurant and then you go with whatever first comes up on Google probably. Um, <clears throat> so they say that uh, <clears throat> their customers are promiscuous, which is a you know, you don't have a walled garden for this stuff. You can order your food from anywhere and it ends up being the same because it gets delivered to you unless it's, you know, 30% more expensive versus 91% more expensive, but whatever. So what they need to do is either one, squeeze every penny they can out of you, the restaurants and the delivery people, or make sure you always go to their 
website. Like you will always go to Seamless. You will always go to Grubhub. They're the same company. You will always go to DoorDash. They want to make sure I always go there. So the way to do that is to make sure that every single restaurant is on your platform. Even if the restaurant has not signed a contract to be on your platform. So they have something called non-partnered restaurants where they basically say, we stole your menu and your hours and your pricing. And when there's an order on our platform, we just call the restaurant and say, hey, can we get an order for blah, 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 blah. And then they place the order that way. And so this is what it ends up looking like um, for a non-partnered restaurant. They make their money on uh, delivery fees for chains. The percent is so small that they end up making $0 per transaction. This is the amount they make uh, for like an average order. But for an independent place, uh, like your, your normal New York City restaurant, they're making $4 per order in profit uh, because they're able to squeeze them on all of those margins that they can't do with chains. And that if they're not on the platform, then <clears throat> uh, they don't, you know, they don't take 30% if you're not on a platform because they're calling you and pretending to be a customer so they can't squeeze you. So like, why would you ever sign up with these businesses? Um, so the issue is for a non-partnered restaurant, you're not in control of anything that happens. You're not in control of keeping prices current. You're not in control of keeping the menu current or hours current. Um, maybe they're gonna deliver to some place that you don't actually consider to be part of uh, like a reasonable area for you to deliver to because maybe your food gets soggy or something goes bad. So what happens is someone orders through Grubhub to a restaurant that does not have a contract with Grubhub. Grubhub calls them up, places an order, and then it gets delivered. Everything that goes wrong in that process, whether it's uh, a bad order or prices are wrong or uh, it takes a really long time for them to make this or something like that, all of that gets put on your Yelp page or some sort of review for you as the restaurant, despite the fact you're like, I didn't even want to do takeout through Grubhub. I didn't want to do takeout at all or delivery at all. And I'm getting screwed as a result. And the best part is if you say, hey, Grubhub, this seems kind of fucked that you would do this because it's bad for everyone. And then Grubhub is like, yes, it is no doubt a bad experience for diners, drivers, and restaurants. That's literally everyone. Who else is in this, this equation? Oh, Grubhub, because all they need to do is show growth in order to get a return from shareholders and all that is fucked up. It's fucked up. So they're saying that this is bad for everyone except us. So we're just going to do it anyway. So sad. So sad. The one upside to all of these delivery services, though, is usually when you have a restaurant, costs a lot of money to start and maintain a restaurant, got a lot of physical space, have to be in somewhere with foot traffic, things like that. But thanks to delivery apps, there are things called ghost kitchens, which are kitchens that don't really have a restaurant attached to them that is a physical space. So what you do is you'll place an order and it goes to you know some warehouse somewhere where there are a bunch of kitchens set up, probably shared by multiple different restaurants. Uh, and then they you know cook and then they deliver it to you. So it's not a place that is built around an in-person dining experience. It's built around a <clears throat> delivery dining experience and it's much cheaper to start a restaurant through this, uh, maybe like $20,000 if you train your own staff, which in terms of restaurant things, I, I think that's pretty low. Um, so in the way that 
let's say dim sum or like an Indian banquet hall, those are really focused on the in-person dining experience. Just flip that around and now you have something where they're like, hey, you know, we live in a box and we cook this food for you and then we ship it out. I think in London, they were all about doing these in shipping containers. And then there were a lot of issues where like you can't tell whether it's sanitary because it's so secret as opposed to a restaurant. You can walk down the street and the cops are like, I'm going to go check that out. A health department's like, I'm going to go check that out. But it's harder to do for ghost kitchens. But I love them. Um, except for there's a lot of weird company names. Cloud Kitchens just sounds real sketchy. Bite-to-Bite uh, -bite Industries. The first bite is B-Y-T-E and the second bite is B-I-T-E. And you're like, I got it. I got it. Like... It's the internet, but it's not 1992 anymore. Come on. So even though I've claimed that I hate delivery and I never, ever get delivery, it's not true. I started doing delivery recently. And the way I started doing delivery is, as I stated before, I live in Brooklyn, Chinatown. And I love to go to places that are, you know, Chinese restaurants and get things, whatever. But I don't always know what everything is. And some places don't have English on their menus. So I go in and I'm very stressed out and I'm very confused. And it's really tough to know what's going on. So everywhere I go, there's an ad for this app called Hungry Panda. And they're like QR codes on all the restaurants that are like order on Hungry Panda. Um, all of the like bus stop ads around me are all for Hungry Panda. And I'm like, great, I'm going to get this app. I'm going to use it. I'm going to order from all these places that are around me that I normally probably would either not be able to order something successfully in or be too stressed out to order something successfully from. So like YBB we talked about before, it's specifically targeted to the Chinese market. It's not a part of WeChat. So even if Trump bans WeChat, you can still use Hungry Panda. Um, but it operates a lot like Seamless or, or any of those other platforms to the point where uh, I could just kind of stab buttons. It's all in Chinese. I can't read Chinese, but if you poke around being like, this was probably a phone number, this is probably a sign up button, they probably want my phone number here, you can successfully sign up. Um, you can't necessarily read things on it. Um, I just take a lot of screenshots and then open up Google Translate and have it translate the image because you can't cut and paste text either. So this is part of my camera roll when I was attempting to place an order uh, last week. And there's like screenshot, screenshot, shot, screenshot, put it in Google Translate, swipe my finger over it, see what it is. And it's like the food that you can get is awesome because A, I can get food from all these places that maybe I wouldn't know about, things like that. But additionally, there are so many pictures so many pictures so I can kind of have an idea about what I am ordering instead of being like, okay, this is called spicy chicken. Like, what, what do you mean by that? And it's, it's a delight. It's a delight. Uh, my favorite thing is down the street from me, there's a place I go to all the time. I always order in person and they always like, I always order the same thing. They know what my order is now, uh, but they still always grab the English speaking person in order to have them uh, uh, come help me out. But on their menu is something called chicken enchiladas. And I'm like, I know this is not chicken enchiladas because this place is like a, like a Chinese barbecue fried chicken place. And they are not going to have chicken enchiladas there. But once I installed Hungry Panda, I got to see, okay, this is what chicken, chicken enchiladas is. Fuck yeah, I'm going to order it. And then I ordered chicken enchiladas and it looked like this, but it was delicious. This is some of the best food I've ever had. 
Um, it's just like barbecue chicken. It comes with a glove you can use to eat it. A lot of the things they sell actually come with gloves. You can eat it. And it's, it's amazing. Um, I ordered that in real life. My first Hungry Panda order uh, was this here from a place called You Love Fish. And I was like, sure, I love fish. I'll order some fish. And I tried to do everything I could to make it so that people would not contact me because I didn't want them to try to talk to me and maybe like, sorry, I cannot communicate with you. Please don't ask me questions. So I pretended that I was in class. Um, there are these buttons like, no sick, uh, in class, please send a text message. And like, just put food downstairs, contact free delivery. But despite me selecting all these things, they still called me and I was like, uh, I hope you're downstairs. And then I went downstairs and sure enough, they were there. They were like, sorry. And I'm like, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This food was delicious. It had bones in it, which is something that I'm not very good at, but it was so good. I was going to order it again today, but I got this bubble tea instead because I've never been to this place. Um, so I figured I would do it. So Hungry Panda lets me order all kinds of stuff. It's amazing. It's great. Uh, the most important thing you've learned tonight is that I'm a liar. And even if I don't sit, if even if I say I don't do delivery, I do do delivery. Um, and also if you want to make the best possible use of your dollar, price check across all of these different apps in order to see what gives you the most, uh, most return for your money. And you're like, wait, Soma, you said you were going to talk about uh, like whether this is destroying planet earth. And I'm like, yes, I was going to do that. But instead I'm going to talk about something completely different because most people that talk about the like polystyrene ban and using stuff and said, it's all based on a paper from 1991 um, that I will download for you and then put on the Facebook page uh, through like a secret Dropbox link. Cause not everyone, you know, has access to, I guess we could use, you know, pirated ways to get academic papers, but it's fine. You can read it. And it's a bunch of people being like, ah, oh, plastic coated paper is terrible. And you're like, it's not 1991 anymore. We have other ways to do it. But here's the important thing. I love Arby's. I love Arby's. Arby's is delicious. Arby's is great. Um, when I was in high school and sold men's clothes in the mall, I would go to Arby's all the time. And it just, yeah, yeah, fuck yes, yes, Arby's rules. Um, I had 15 minute break. I would rush to Arby's. I would eat a beef and cheddar and then I'd run away and I'd go back to work and I would always be late, but it was worth it. So um, Tyler, where do you live? Are you in New York or are you, El okay, Brooklyn, great. Just stay tuned. Um, so the kingpin of sandwiches is the beef and cheddar. Uh, it is beef and it is cheddar. It's kind of beef. It's like reconstituted beef into a slab that they then cook and then they, they slice it up. And there's two delightful sauces that can go with it. Arby sauce, which is like a light ketchupy barbecue red sauce and horsey sauce, which is like a horseradishy mayo sauce. They have curly fries, like Arby's is great. So um, the problem with Arby's is there isn't one in New York. A thousand years ago, they had one in uh, a building in downtown Brooklyn on Fulton Mall. And I actually, uh, so, okay, A, it was in like a historic landmarked building and it was beautiful inside and it was amazing. And I joined Foursquare just to become the mayor of Arby's. And I became the mayor of Arby's because no one besides me would go there like every day of their life. But then it closed down, as you can see now closed. Um, and actually the restaurant that that place uh, 
was in reopened the day, the day before the pandemic shut everything down. But that's another story. So after it closed down, people kept checking in on Foursquare and then someone else became the mayor. And I was fucking angry about that, but that's fine. So if you want beef and cheddar in New York, there are two places that you can go. Number one, Brennan and Carr. Brennan and Carr is a horrifying, okay, I'm sorry for what I'm about to say. Brennan and Carr is a horrifying dark building in Sheep's Head Bay where they make an awful beef and cheddar, awful sandwiches. And as far as I can tell, the restaurant is mostly about like older middle-aged men who want to get smashed on Coors Light in the middle of the day. Uh, and the servers wear fancy clothes and it might've been good in like 1902, but I don't like it. It's not my favorite, but going there once I feel like is good. I'm sorry, but what about Roland Roaster instead? Roland Roaster is the fucking jam. Look at that picture. That's what it looks like. Um, it, it, all of the excitement of the vision of this place. It's a relic of its time and it's delicious in like a trashy, trashy way. And you can get cheese sauce on everything and they spell it cheese, like C-H-E-E-Z. I mean, I guess because it's not cheese, um, but it's, it's so good. And I went there, I guess, uh, at the beginning of COVID and they were the first place that I thought was really doing COVID stuff right. Cause they had all the like marks on the floor and they actually had a man, um, they had a man by the door being like, go stay in there, go stay in there, go stay in there. And I was like, wow, I always thought of you as like an exciting place where if you spend $35, you get a free cheese pizza. Um, but, and you know, food that looks like this and it's just, it's great. And it's still great now. And you can just eat it in your car. And I was like, oh, this is where Arby's came. This is where Arby's comes from, right? Like this is the precursor to Arby's. This is Arby's. And then I was like, wait, there's another kind of sandwich that you can get at mostly Italian places. That's roast beef and cheese sandwiches, but they're with mozzarella. And so, for example, John's Deli uh, makes this sandwich. What do they call it? I think it's just like a roast beef and cheese sandwich. And it's delicious but it's much further away from kind of what you get at arby's but this is maybe one of the best sandwiches i've ever made no it is one of the best sandwiches i've ever made except my friend jen was like it's bland it needs salt but i don't know if you don't like the one at john's deli you can go to leone's and they also have one and like every everything is delightful and delicious and those places are amazing but then but then but then um so i was recently in northern virginia which is apparently virginia's cultural region it's about as cultural as this picture implies in that it is not cultural at all. I lived there for far too long. Um, and on my way back, I was trying to find places to go. And I was burned by a few places in New York or in Northern Virginia. I was burned by a Filipino restaurant that is located on a golf course. Uh, I was burned by a Burmese restaurant that was uh, across from a 7-Eleven. And I was like, okay, I'm not eating any more Northern Virginia food. And I was looking at, you know, Google Maps on my phone where I star all kinds of restaurants that I want to go to, even if they're not in New York or places I'm going to be. And I noticed some around Baltimore. And what these places serve is something called a Baltimore pit beef sandwich, which is always billed as Maryland's answer to barbecue. Maryland's answer to barbecue, it's not, it's not really barbecue at all. It's cooked over like high heat. It's you probably raw in the middle. Um, it's a roast beef sandwich. It's fucking Arby's sandwich without cheddar on it. And it's the best 
food in the world. It's like exactly the same as an Arby's sandwich. It's just like going to Arby's, but there's not cheese on it. So roast beef on a bun, roast beef on a bun. Arby's puts a weird thing called uh, red ranch on your beef and cheddar. And then they also have Arby's sauce, which is like a barbecue-y ketchup -y sauce. For a pit beef sandwich, you also add a barbecue sauce that's like kind of like a ketchup-y Carolina sauce. Basically the same thing as Arby's sauce. Arby's has horsey sauce, which is a combo of mayo and horseradish. Pit beef has uh, like a, a Baltimore sauce called tiger sauce, which is horse beef, horse beef, uh, horseradish and mayo. So it's the exact same stuff, but you get it in Maryland and it's delicious and amazing. And the places you buy it from look like this. Um, Pioneer Pit Beef on the left where everyone either worked in construction or they were a cop, but everyone eats pit beef. And I think everyone goes to Pioneer, but maybe it was just because it was like 11.05 in the morning that really the diehards were there. Um, and the other one uh, on the right, I think is called Jake's Grill. And if you see that road right there, it's like a really sharp turn where everyone's driving very, very fast. And you basically park on the road when you're eating at this place. Uh, and you come up to the corner and you see smoke coming around and then you turn the corner and you're like, wow, if I were going any faster than the speed limit, I would have killed literally everybody who is here eating the food. And you're really scared when you're backing out. Um, and like the menu looks like this, like Baltimore pit beef is amazing. The restaurants are amazing. Everything is amazing. It's also 10 times more delicious because they use what we'll call real meat, despite the fact that like reconstituted pressed blocks of meat are real meat 100% and like no still eating and blah, blah. But in 1973, uh, there was a meat shortage in the United States. I think specifically maybe a, a beef shortage. Uh, and so all the fast food chains like McDonald's had originally had their burgers that uh, they were cheap, 13 cents, I don't know, something. They had to raise prices for their burgers because there was a shortage of beef and all the prices went up. And Arby's was like, our sandwiches already cost like 69 cents, which is way too much money. We're not going to raise prices. We're just going to change from being like actual hunks of meat to being uh, kind of reconstituted bits. But yeah, just like Baltimore pit beef, go to Baltimore, get pit beef, or Roland Roaster in Brooklyn, or John's Deli, or Leone's, all these things are the places to go to get sandwiches. And like, can, can you do delivery? Oh, Roland Roaster. Um, oh, I don't have a screenshot of this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to Google this, and I'm going to show it to you if I can find Chrome. New window, Roland Roaster. So one of the things that happens when you are dealing with uh, places like Grubhub and DoorDash and all these things, people always say there's the uh, non-contracted restaurants, right? We talked about them and you're like, hey, uh, we don't have a contract with them, but you're going to order through us and then we're going to call them and place an order, whatever. And there are a lot of restaurants that say, take me off this list, take me off this list. And like Chipotle got in a fight, they sued DoorDash, I think for putting them on as a place that would deliver. Uh, and then DoorDash was just like, no, we're not gonna take you off. And then three years later, eventually Chipotle was like, okay, I guess it's fine. But if you look up Roland Roaster, Roland Roaster delivery, I think, and you scroll down, share screen. If you scroll down, uh, the third result is DoorDash.com, inactive store, do not edit. 
because what they will do is they will take you off and then put you back on without your permission, which is something like all these platforms fucking do, which is why the brainery had to like yell at Yelp and other things all the time, all the time for the first like five years we were open. But yeah, so all everything comes together in the end. If you want delivery of Roland Roaster, go to rollandroaster.com. Don't go to this inactive store. Do not edit delivery in Brooklyn. That is on DoorDash. And so that is all I have for you. Um, the chat was really cracking me up. Like I have tiny tear droplets. You will agree that Brennan and Carr is an institution. I think everyone should go there once to kind of make a decision about how they feel about it. Um, because I, I think that I have forced people to go to Brendan and Carr. A hundred percent, they hate me for it. Um, but yes, I a hundred percent have made them go there. Here's the last thing I'm going to tell you all. This was amazing. I had such a good time. Thank you for joining us. Um, we have- Oh, wait, Sarah. What? Here. This right here came from Hungry Panda. I ordered it just beforehand. I don't know if I said that during my talk, but this is my second Hungry Panda order. I got bubble tea just so I could say I did it twice. That's all. This, this is from uh, Tiger Sugar, which I did not go to because the line's always really long and it seems stressful, even though it seems like they only order one thing or only have one thing on the menu. So just give me the number one. But yes, Tiger Sugar. I downloaded Hungry Panda. We'll see what happens. We'll see if it delivers in Cleveland. Uh, it does speak <laughs> Chinese, however, you're, you're correct. So that will be an interesting experience. The last thing I want to say is that we have decided on our talk for next month. I just put the link to the Facebook event in the chat and also our ticket link went up this afternoon. Um, it is spooky Halloween mushrooms. So uh, lots of mushroom things about how mushrooms can kill you and not kill you. And that's going to be October 28th, I believe, right here at, on your computer at home. So we'll see you there. Other than that, thank you. This was I'm so much fun. I hope you had a great time too. And we'll see you next month. Bye. Bye.